Amen to that. Amen. May it be indeed well with our souls. Well, as I said, this morning we are returning to the Gospel of John after a time uh, during Christmas where we were somewhat away from the Gospel, although there were a couple of key verses in our series of peace uh, that came out of John. Turn with me this morning to John chapter 12, page 899 of the Blue Bibles or uh, printed in your bulletins as is most comfortable for you to follow along with. And as we come to this section, to the triumphal entry, we come, of course, to a transition point in uh, both the life of Jesus and also in the gospel itself. Uh, the, the transition, of course, is that as Jesus now comes into Jerusalem this final time, uh, it is the week of his death, the week of his suffering, the, the week of passion that he enters into. John, for the first half of the book, has shown to us the incredible works of Jesus that reveal who Jesus is, and it has culminated with the raising of Lazarus. And this raising of Lazarus has provided the, the kind of context for which he has returned to this area, and then also the reason why the tensions and the expectations are even higher for him as he makes this entrance into Jerusalem. Just by way of reminder, we'll read, as I read this section for us, of the vast crowds that are there. The feast that is mentioned, of course, is Passover. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem along with other pilgrims who have either already arrived or who are in the process of going to Jerusalem. And conservative estimates put the amount of people who would be coming into Jerusalem for Passover in the numbers of several hundred thousands. It, it, it could have been significantly more uh, than that, more than a million. Some estimates are more than two million people would be coming into Jerusalem for Passover. So whether it is 500,000 or whether it's two million, it's clear that it's a lot of people who are gathered together at this particular point in time. So keep that in mind as I read for us, and this is the Word of God. I'll begin at verse 12 and continue today until verse 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
Behold Your King is our title for today's sermon. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, uh, we thank you for this word. We thank you for being able to observe through the eyes of those who were there, through the eyes of those who witnessed these things and then recorded them for us. We thank you for being able to look on the scene now like the disciples after the time our Lord was glorified to be able to understand them and to see what is happening here and what's not happening here. We pray that you would help us always to understand your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it well and we pray then that it would take root and live in our lives and bear appropriate fruit in us. Thank you for today and thank you for this word. Jesus, thank you for your courage of going to Jerusalem. And we pray in your name. Amen. I know that at least some of you folks here, I don't know all of you, I don't know how many, I don't know which people in particular, but I know that at least some of you went to the parade in Philadelphia when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Uh, I, I don't know how many parades you tend to go to or tend to watch on TV. I always like to catch uh, at least a few minutes of the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade up in New York. Uh, I enjoy that. I try to catch at least a few minutes of the uh, Tournament of Roses Parade in Pasadena and see some of the floats and the way that they are decorated. And when it's possible, although it's been a few years now, I like to get to the St. Patrick's Day Parade as it goes through uh, Conshohocken uh, and enjoy that time together. And maybe Maybe thinking of a parade, thinking of those kind of crowds of people coming together is a helpful way to, to imagine at least a little bit of the setting, a little bit of what the atmosphere may have been like as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Uh, parades are big, and they're loud, and they're raucous affairs, and all sorts of things are happening in a parade. You know, there's, there's what is happening in front of you as you're watching whatever it is proceed by you, and uh, whether they're singing or whether it's floats or whether it's a band or people in costume, you watch those things. But of course, that's not the only thing that's taking place in a parade. In addition to what's going on in front of you is what you're doing and what the people all around you are doing. And, and, and you not only watch out there, you also watch and get involved in the people that are right next to you. Parades are a, a living and an organic thing that are shifting and shaped all through the day, all through the time of the parade. They're, they're full of energy and a mixed and diverse group of people watching but participating as well. Depending on what they're seeing, they might be cheering at some point. They might be yelling uh, at another point. Sometimes that will be something in unison. Other times people will be saying all sorts of different things. And that's no doubt the case here as well. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, we don't need to imagine that hundreds of thousands of people were saying exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. But surely different things were being said and being experienced as Jesus made his way into the city. And as he comes in, of course, we see that the word is spreading and this, this parade begins organically, not something that had been planned in advance. 
but they hear that he's coming into the city and the crowds that were already there and the crowds that were traveling with him, having heard and seen of the things that he did with Lazarus, come together on the roads of the city to meet this particular pilgrim. Many of them had just traveled those very roads to come into Jerusalem, but now this particular pilgrim draws their particular attention as he comes into the city. Now, on the one hand, this is a celebration, right? We call it the triumphal entry. It's a triumph as Jesus comes in, and who doesn't love a parade? And who doesn't love a man who just raised someone from the dead? So there's celebration. Everybody's glad for that which is taking place. On the other hand, and we can't ignore this when we read this story, there's a shadow here. There's something that that is dark and sinister going on at the very same time of this triumphal entry. Uh, one writer calls it a looming betrayal that is out there. So, so you see on the one hand the, the celebration and you're glad for it and it seems like a good thing, but something else is at work at exactly the same time. And, and the reality, of course, as testified by what we just read together, is that while a lot of things are going on and while in the moment I suppose that people thought they all understood what was taking place, at least to some level. There's, a, there's an admission within this that even his disciples, even his disciples didn't really understand what was taking place and why it was taking place and what it all meant until after he was glorified. Verse 16 says that, right? His disciples did not understand these things at first. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look at both sides of this, perhaps with an emphasis on the celebration side of it as Jesus comes in, or to say the the triumph of the triumphal entry, but we'll look at the other side of it uh, as well. So the verse that is quoted on your bulletin and used not so much by the crowds, but by a later interpretation of what took place there is the one that includes from Zechariah the phrase, behold, your king, your king is coming. This is the presence of Israel's long-awaited king. And, And the presence of this king is the reason that the people should rejoice, or uh, depending on whether you're looking in the Old Testament or the New Testament with that Zechariah passage, rejoice or fear not. This is a good thing that's taking place. Everybody's waiting and has been waiting for this king to come, and now it appears the king who has been prophesied and expected is coming in. And if we now put this in the language of Psalm 118 uh, that we read earlier is the Old Testament reading, glad song of salvation are in the tents of the righteous, and and people are proclaiming these glad songs as this victorious pilgrim enters into Jerusalem. So Psalm 118 was one of the psalms that was used at the time of the Passover, so it's in everyone's mind, and as he comes in, it reminds them, wait a minute, this is the one. 
this is the one whom we're waiting for. We, we sang this song, we've been singing this song for hundreds of years, and now here comes this one into Jerusalem. And, and if, we, if we take the fact that you've got here a nation that is under occupation by Rome and Roman authority, but who has the promises of God, we recognize that they have got this expectation, this hope for a national deliverance. Now, that may be true at many times, but of course it's particularly true and it feels particularly imminent when you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are gathered together and when it's Passover, because Passover reminds everybody of a deliverance that took place 1,500 years earlier, and when everybody's got thoughts of Moses on their mind, God's going to raise up for us another deliverer like Moses to lead us out of captivity and deliver us as a nation. The idea here is that those thoughts of redemption, those thoughts of the exodus, they kind of permeate the mood that is there. They, they charge the atmosphere. It's electrified, and Jesus becomes the lightning rod that collects all of that energy and all of that expectation of the people, and it becomes focused on him in particular. And so things begin to coalesce. Things begin to move. Maybe everybody doesn't understand where they're heading. Maybe everybody doesn't understand what they're saying and what they're doing, but you follow along. You follow along and you join with the crowd and you move in as this one comes into Jerusalem and you start to get excited about what actually might happen. Now, uh, I've not been in a setting like that. I don't think that's quite a parade. I haven't been in a setting like that in this country, but I have been in a setting much like that in another country that has been in the news quite a bit over the past couple of months. I've been in the setting as with another brother in this room where there's this expectation that this is a time of deliverance and there are hundreds of thousands of people who are gathered together and all of a sudden the crowd starts moving and heading towards a certain place and you think that the change is going to come. It's an electric atmosphere as you're experiencing something like this. And so as this takes place, they're trying to figure out, what do we do? What, what do we do to mark this occasion? And that's when they grab the palm branches, okay? They're, they're, there are palm branches around, and they grab palm branches and start waving and throwing them down. Uh, the, the palms weren't particularly associated with Passover, but by this time in Israel's history, they had become kind of a national symbol, a symbol of hope, the hope of deliverance, the hope of the eventual victory of the nation and uh, defeated enemies. So even in doing that, even in grabbing the palm branches, they're kind of adding to the fervor of the moment. Let's get these. Let's anticipate this king and the deliverance he's going to bring. To give you a picture of this, <coughs> excuse me, that will take place in the future. I want to turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and give you a scene that looks just like this one in heaven. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see the parallels of the two scenes? They're they're almost exactly the same, except all the nations are gathered in uh, Revelation. Uh, But they they grab the palm branches, they throw them before the lamb who is the king, and they celebrate and they cry out together, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's in the Revelation scene. Here, in our scene, the crowds cry out together, Hosanna. Hosanna, which is just a, it's just a transliteration of Hebrew from Psalm 118, and effectively it means give salvation now, or God, save us. It's become at this point in Israel's history kind of a greeting, a salutation uh, that they would give, but it's a proclamation as this one comes in, God, save us, Hosanna, to this one who comes. And of course, then it's followed by what is verse 26 of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, it was the warrior who seemed to be defeated, who comes into the camp with victory, and so they see Jesus fulfilling exactly this role. He's unlikely, but he is the one that God has appointed to fulfill this role, and they amplify the psalm and the figure by adding even the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118, but they put it here because it matched their hopes and their dreams and their prophetic expectations. They are ready. They are ready for a victorious, conquering, delivering king to come in, to take care of things, to set them free, but there's a twist to it. And this twist is within the celebration. This twist allows us to see that this is even more glorious than than what they could foresee at this very moment. And so here's the twist. Jesus, as he's coming in, being expected to be this conquering hero, does not say, listen, as I get in here, somebody grab me a sword and somebody get me a war horse. You get me a sword, you get me a war horse, let's get in here and let's accomplish this deliverance. Instead, he mounts a young donkey. Now, as we've read from the text, at that moment, no one caught the full importance, the full meaning of what was going on there. Certainly, they didn't catch how that added to the glory of the moment that Jesus, this delivering king, would come in riding on a donkey. It's hidden to them. But in order to understand it, we are directed by uh, our text to the passage in Zechariah. Look at the front of your bulletin with me for just a moment. Jesus' act of riding the donkey and this prophecy reveal to us things about his kingship and the nature of how he is going to be and to be reigning as king, at least for this present kingship. There's something that you have to keep in mind. Jesus will come riding on a war horse with a sword. Okay, that's the image in Revelation chapter 19. He will come with a sword riding on a war horse to be the deliverer, but that is not yet. What is taking place now 
is he's coming into Jerusalem swordless on a donkey. What does that mean? Well, it, it actually does mean something, and Zechariah 9, 9 through 11, show us what it means. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey? What this says to us is that right now his kingdom is going to be a kingdom characterized by humility. The humility of the king and the humility of those who will follow after the king. What kind of kingdom is this? It's a humble kingdom. Secondly, in the next verse, as you continue on here in Zechariah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Got it? The, the, the war horse that would be heading towards Jerusalem is cut off. I'm cutting off the war horse, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This kingdom will not be a kingdom established by the power of the sword or by the power of the war horse. Instead, it will be a kingdom of peace. That will be the nature of his kingdom. He is the prince of peace, and he comes speaking peace to people as he comes into Jerusalem. And finally, the last phrase there from Zechariah, and for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This kingdom will not be established by the shedding of the blood of the enemies. This kingdom will be established by the shedding of the blood of the king. That's how it will grow. That's how it will be established. The blood of my covenant will affect the creation of this kingdom. And in fact, instead of the blood of the enemies being shed, no, no, no. The, the salvation that's going to be accomplished is going to extend peace to the nations, rule being from sea to sea. So we behold the triumph of this king, of the type of kingship that he will bring. It's glorious, it's beautiful, it's to be celebrated, but it's a different kind of kingship than they would have been expecting or hoping for at the moment. But of course, there's a dark side to this as well. There is a shadow to this as well. In Psalm 118, if we were to read the entire thing together, we would see that the warrior is surrounded by enemies. Uh, and in the name of the Lord, he cuts off the enemies. But as we read and followed through in that psalm, it's not only that the warrior, this king-to-be, would be surrounded by enemies from outside, it's also that he would be rejected by the builders. That is to say, he'd be rejected by the very ones who should have known to expect him. There's problems for this king outside, and there's problems for this king inside as well. He's celebrated as he comes in in Psalm 18, and they celebrate together by the statement, let's, let's bind the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar and worship together 
and instead the fulfillment of this would be different. It would be a different sacrifice and a different altar just a few days away. There's a darkness that looms here. The council right before this in John chapter 11 has sentenced Jesus to death. They've sentenced Lazarus to death as well, and they harden their resolve as they observe this kind of parade charade that's going on in front of them. They harden their resolve and say, you see that we are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. There's one thing that has to be done. We've got to kill him. We've got to get rid of this one so that things can be as they ought to be. And lest we think that, well, that's just some small faction. Most of the people were with Jesus, but this small faction was against him. We have to remember what Jesus and what John has made clear throughout his gospel is you don't trust crowds. Don't entrust yourself to the crowds and to the enthusiasm of the crowds. The crowds here are shouting, and well, they're, they're, they're hailing him, even the king of the Jews. But in just a few days, in just a few days, someone else will say to them, behold your king. Behold your king. And of course, that will be when Jesus has been uh, stripped, beaten, reclothed in kind of phony royal clothes, mocked by the soldiers, hail the king of the Jews. And then Pilate will present him to the people and say, behold your king. And they will say, instead of hail him, they'll say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Don't trust the crowds. Beware of the fickleness of the human heart. We call this the triumphal entry. In one sense, we can understand why, but it's not the real triumphal entry. It's not. The triumphal entry is when Jesus entered into the gates of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, having accomplished salvation for his people, and the gates of heaven are opened unto him, and the hosts of heaven cry out and hail him and say, all glory and honor and majesty and dominion be unto the lamb who was slain, who purchased for God a people, a kingdom of priests. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father on high. That is the triumphal entry. That is the one that will be full of truth. We sang about it last week. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on his way while we sing out together, hallelujah to the King. Rest is good, but the parade that will take place in heaven as Jesus comes by us will be greater than that. For now, for now, I I suppose there are a number of things we can draw from this, the, the way that Jesus fulfills Scripture. But for now, I think one of the things that this passage calls us to is to worship the Lord, to hail Him as King with sincerity and with integrity in our hearts and in our lives. Should we, should we shout and sing His praise like they did that day? Well, certainly, 
We should come together as the people of God and sing his praise. Should we go out after him and gather together with others? Certainly, that's what we're doing today, gathered together with others to sing and to hail the name of Jesus. That's the hymns that I picked out with Bonnie for us today. Hail the anointed, hail to the brightness of Zion's glad morning, hail the reign of King Jesus. And should we bear witness like those who had seen the resurrection of Lazarus? Absolutely, we should do all of those things. But I think there is a call in here as well to examine ourselves and to make sure that we are doing those very things with sincerity, or to use the Zechariah passage, in humility, in the peace that has been given to us by the shed blood of the covenant. Parades are fun. Who doesn't enjoy the excitement and the fervor of a parade? But our God is not looking for bursts of enthusiasms to come forth from us. He's not looking for spasms of good things that we might hail and say out at any one particular moment in the context of a crowd who's excited about something. Instead, what Jesus is looking for, well described, is a long and faithful obedience filled with sincerity and filled with truth in the same direction. That's the honor of the Lord. There will be good parades to come in heaven when we won't have to worry, are our emotions actually full of sincerity and truth? We will rejoice and we will shout and we will yell and we can be confident that having been cleansed from our sin, we'll do so with sincerity and with integrity. For now, we'll be just a little bit skeptical of ourselves when we're feeling that. And we'll seek instead a worship of God in sincerity and in truth because that's the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. That's what Jesus taught us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you exactly like that. We pray that you would help us to examine ourselves and to know ourselves. We want to be people of integrity. We want to be people of sincerity. We don't want to be hypocritical. We don't want to be hypocritical in being here today, caught up with our brothers and sisters and saying things that we don't believe or shouting in a way that doesn't make sense for us. We don't understand the things. We want to love and to serve and to follow you. And we pray that you would help us to do that which in and of ourselves is beyond us. Cleanse us. Cleanse our heart. Cleanse the, the filth of the sin from our lives so that we can worship you with a cleansed conscience and a sincere and cleansed heart. That's what we desire as your people. We cannot do it ourselves. We are completely dependent upon you, and we pray that you would so work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, the blood of this covenant is set before us. The festal sacrifice has become instead the Lord Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes the way, away the sin of the world. Our sincerity will not stand, it will not hold up. The sincerity of the offer of the Lord Jesus Christ will.